Welcome to Theology on Tap. I'm your co-host, Christian Lunday. Across from me is my other co-host, Derek Sessom. Hey, hey. What's up, man? Hey, man. Here today we got a very special guest, Pastor Chesley Lunday of uh, Christ Community Church. He's their youth pastor and digital pastor. Um, and today we're going to be talking about universalism, so it's going to be a fun topic. Oh, yeah. But first, we've got our beer of the week. Today, it's Grosch. 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 Protein. Uh, it's a premium <laughs> German lager. It sounds German. It's made like 400 years ago, and now it's one of the smoothest beers I think I've ever had. Yeah. Grosch. Grosch. <laughs> All righty. Chesley, how are you? Pretty good. How about you? Oh, man, we're kicking. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Feeling smooth like the Smooth. Gross. Yeah, so today we're talking about universalism. Uh, we're going to talk about how how much it appeals to our culture uh, as far as evangelicals go, and then we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that you might find some holes with it, um, some things you might find agreeable, and hopefully this is a productive conversation. Oh, yeah. So, Chesley. Yeah. Pastor Chesley. Not my brother, Chesley. No. But you are my brother, Chesley. Yes. Could you give us a quick summary of what universalism is? Well, if I can clear my throat. Yep. um, Just, you know, as I'm preparing to give you this wonderful oratory on universalism. No, I'm just playing. Um, Universalism is... uh, uh, a religious set of philosophies that basically says um, that what God came to do in humanity is save it to a point that you're all in. Everybody's going to get saved at some point or another. Uh, God redeem God is redeeming all of creation, but He redeemed all of humanity. Mm. And so, what this means for us is that. Uh, you don't have to live right to be accepted. You're already accepted, no matter how you live or what you believe. Um, and Jesus did all of that on the cross for everyone. Doesn't matter if you're Muslim, doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you are an atheist, doesn't matter if you're Hitler, you will be in. Interesting. Nice little rundown. I know there's like different uh, types of universalism, like patristic, Unitarian, evangelical. I don't necessarily know all the uh, ins and outs of it, but it seems like it's pretty, pretty cut and dry that everyone's saved no matter, no matter what they do on this earth and no matter what they believe at the end of the day, they're going to be saved. Yeah, uh, there are definitely just like any other um, denomination or, uh, or, uh, certain philosophy there are different tribes and streams of that some people believe there's a hell just for satan and his angels some people believe that there is no hell at all uh others believe that although everybody is redeemed and will go um to heaven they can choose not to be around god if they so deem it right interesting so forsaking grace for their own pride yeah yeah yeah, it was <clears throat> charismatic portion of Christianity calls it uh, complete reconciliation. They don't they don't use the term universalism. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, my first question is: What do you think 
is so appealing about universalism? Well, so I've got a couple friends that uh, are still struggling with uh, the intellectual piece of Christianity. There are some claims in Scripture that are just really hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus raising from the dead is among the number one, but you got the ark. You have uh, two people in a garden where all of humanity came from. Uh, you have the idea of, uh, well, and some people believe this, some people don't, but the earth being created in six days. You have the Red Sea, Jesus turning water into wine, raising somebody from the dead. Um those are hard to wrap your mind around. And so some of my friends are working through the intellectual prowess of Christianity. And although some a lot of it makes logical sense for them, um, they just can't wrap their minds around the fact that God is uh, came to earth in the form of a man named Jesus and uh, did all the things that he did, died a death, and then rose again that's really difficult they like the tenets of christianity they like the people that they're around but they just have a hard time moving to a place of believing and so when i think of my friends like that um it's easy to to want uh everybody to uh get in whether you believe especially those they're like you know what i get the intellectual struggle Um, I've got some friends that uh, I hang out with often that are, um, they don't go to church, they don't live a Christian lifestyle, and my theology says that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to end up in hell, and I hate that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you know? Me too. Um, That type of stuff keeps me up at night. And yet we also live in a culture that evangelism is evil and uh, we shouldn't try to uh, force our beliefs on someone else. Uh, Although we don't force our beliefs, we share our beliefs, but by sharing you're trying to force in in our culture. And so um, when you have a cultural pressure that says evangelism or sharing your faith is evil and yet your friends over here, you hate the fact that if they don't believe a certain thing, then based on your beliefs, they won't end up in the place that you will. And and when those two things converge, universalism looks really, really attractive. You know? And so you have to you have to deal with it. Um there are other m- more high level um more widespread views um, or I would say uh, thoughts on this as far as like uh, a baby that doesn't know Jesus. Um, are they accepted? Well, universalism has a really good answer for that. Um, <clears throat> my own sensibilities with uh, the idea that Jesus came and did something cosmic or for the entire universe, like, Universalism sounds very attractive for the fact that God didn't do something uni- just individual. God did something universal, you know. And then there's these uh, other arguments about what do you do with the people that literally never heard of Jesus, lived their entire lives, um, and 
lived and died, and Jesus was never on their radar. Are they going to hell? Well, um, evangelical, Protestant, um, even Catholic uh, theology has a harder time answering those questions than universalism does. And so when you take all those into account, universalism looks pretty darn attractive. Yeah, I'd say uh, down to a more basic level, I think I even on both sides of the aisle have believing friends and non-believing friends that whenever they think of God, their first question is, how could an all-loving God send people to an eternal damnation? Yeah. Where they suffer endlessly. And uh, I think that's, at least from what I my experience, I think that's what most people I know grapple with because they're trying to reconcile these two points of God, all loving and all just, and they just can't. It's just incomprehensible. Yeah, I'll say this too. Um, Western thinking, Western philosophy, when I say Western, I'm talking mostly Anglo-European, yeah. white, um, and not so much white now in America. We're very, um, it's probably still predominantly white, but definitely more diverse now than it ever has been. But from a Western philosophy, um, we we actually struggle with this, whereas Eastern thinking and people in Eastern philosophy, they would actually be appalled by the idea of universalism. And I think it has to do with the fact they're an honor culture. And so um, evil must be punished. And it would be unjust to send an evil person to heaven. That's why karma is so easily understood in Eastern cultures. Because um, who you are now and the suffering that you're having in the present moment is all justice for what you did back. when you were in your previous existences. So there's no pity on you. There's no compassion for your circumstances. And to say that you, you get in all of you, no matter what you do is, is pretty asinine from an Eastern perspective. They would actually think a God like that is completely unjust to let everyone in. And there's some real, uh, there's some real teeth to that argument. It's really cool to have everybody in until you get to Hitler and Stalin and Mao. Right. Right? Those guys who killed multiple thousands of people, millions of people between the three of them. Actually, I think it's in the hundreds of millions of people by the, between the three of them. More than could be counted. Yeah. It's, um, it's easy to sit there and go, you know. I don't think those three should be in. But universalism would say, yeah, you know, maybe there is a stream of thought that says, yeah, not those guys. But for the most part, universalists say that everybody gets in. Well, it, and that would defeat itself if you would come down to a, a, the conclusion that, well, they obviously know. Well, then how would you then determine everybody else? Right. Because if grace abounds, then grace has to abound. Yeah, I I do have questions on the universalist front. Um, How do you... uh, How do you handle someone that says, if I knew God, even if I knew God, I wouldn't want God? Yeah. Do you let them in against their will? 
I don't know those. I don't know. I don't know how they handle that question. I know that uh, I think there's a sect of Judea- <clears throat> Judaism that is a universalist. They're kind of similar, where it's uh, reconciliation, but those people they still go to hell, but they they suffer their recompense basically, and then get go back into the to the fold of God. Mm. So we're saying um, a- after a time of suffering, they're gonna want to change their mind. There's I don't know if they're going to want to change their mind. I think it's. I think what they believe is God has set a, set their atonement in a certain way. They fulfill it, and then they're welcome back. It's like serving your. Well, that's kind of the argument for purgatory. Yeah, there it's purgatorial hell. Is right. what I read, but I don't know if those. That's all of Judaism. Like, I'm still learning about it, but that's what I was reading. Yeah, I think Marty Solomon. On the Bama podcast, I think he might be a universalist, but I'm not sure. I, I need to listen to more of his stuff. Well, I think even like um, you guys would know better than I do. There is some uh, early 20th century theologian who did try to make that conclusion himself, which is like, why would you, knowing the rags that you carry, even though that you've been washed clean by Christ, why would you want to carry any of that junk into heaven potentially? So wouldn't it be better for you to get some type of cleansing before you take that step? Yeah. Honestly, universalism does not mesh well with my no. theology at all. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to, before we get into that, I want to throw the question to you, uh, licensed therapist. Oh, good. Why do you think <laughs> universalism is so palatable to our culture? Because it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I mean, it, so, oh man, there's so many ways you could go down on that. Um, I mean, like, for one, like with universalism, you're 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 coming to a conclusion that all are accepted, um, and even in our current state of trying to find as much tolerance and acceptance for everybody, even almost to a fault, um, the idea of the individualism and and one being able to um, be accepted through their own individual identity and properties is is something that is very palp- you know, palpable, right? It's something that tastes good. Like you, you would want somebody to be like, why, why would somebody um, need to necessarily change to have that happen for them, right? So, I mean, in that, at least within America, the individual liberty piece, I think, is huge, at least as far as individual liberty within identity is concerned. Because there's so many different things where it's like, well, I mean, I'm going to walk my own path, and then um, I know that Jesus loves me anyways. And because Jesus loves me anyways, I'm going to be able to spend time with him eternally. Or the, I'm a good person. Well, yeah. I do good things. I'll go to heaven. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like, even even following the I'm a good person thing, it's like, well, Jesus loved everybody. I try to love everybody. I'm not as good as Jesus, but wouldn't he still accept me because I try? Right. Actually, so universalism, that's that's a common misconception, right? Uh, For universalists, it's like, no, grace abounds so much that... um, you don't have to be a good person anymore. You can just live right. however you, you want. You can live however you want. Everything can be relative to who you are, and right. you're still accepted. So that's the second point, too, especially with our own society, because even now, how much more favorable is it, it, is it to live a life without any type of accountability at all in yeah. an eternal scale? Because, I mean, that's the eternal problem. You're looking at eternity and be like, that's really hard to reconcile with, whether it be suffering for people who are getting punished or otherwise. So it's like, okay, what what would be better than to live a uh, you know a responsible less uh, existence in a mortal coil and then know that you're still covered by grace? Are you kidding me? I mean, come on, like free for all, party, let's go. 
I mean, and you know, Paul kind of gets there. <laughs> Paul gets really dangerously close to that. He says that Jesus does it so thoroughly, um, has has finished his work on the cross so much to a point that um, whenever you sin, grace abounds more. Right. So Paul's not denying that fact either. Now, Paul has more streams of thought when he comes in, when he thinks about the gospel than just one, which is God saves universally because he's doing something cosmic. And that that's great. That is true. God saves. God is doing something on a cosmic level that is way bigger than any of us can imagine, way more radical than any of us can imagine. And yet that is not the whole picture. Yeah, I do. Actually, that's I almost see a dichotomy between Peter and Paul because whenever I whenever I read Peter, First Peter and Second Peter, he seems like he comes down with a jackhammer in, in terms of uh, ultimate justice, whereas Paul does seem to like toe the line. And I think that's kind of interesting, at least in my perspective. Well, yeah, and you also have to look at Paul with uh, who he's, which audience he's writing to, because what you'll even notice in Paul's writings is that depending on um, the city he's writing to, that will determine the type of logic he uses. Right. So Romans, which is concerned, uh, considered his, uh, um, like his magnus opus, if you will, magnum opus, if you will, um, it is his crown jewel of Christian theology. He's you reason why we think that is because we we are um, brought up in a way to understand Greek logic. That is Western philosophy, right? So Romans, uh, at its face value, makes most sense to us. I, I would, I would suggest that actually Paul does things in Romans that are very difficult to understand from a Western philo- like a Western form, frame of uh, thought, because he does inject uh, some historical context in there that we don't understand as Americans, and he injects. Uh, um, some some Hebrew um, work in there. So for the most part, it feels Greek. It feels Western in his way of thinking. And he is, he is laying out a logical argument, uh, more so than in any of his other books. But if you go over to the Philippians or if you go over to the Corinthians, um, it seems a lot less um, flu, like uh, formal, if yep. you will. Like it's kind of all over the place. He's he's talking about specific things and it goes off into another subject. And then the, the reasoning seems to change. Like he'll talk about something, but it won't be linear. It'll be circular. And if you know Eastern thought versus Western thought, Western is way more linear. Eastern thought is way more circular. To understand a point from a Jewish perspective is to understand everything around the point. For a uh, a Western thinker to understand the point, you understand point A to B to C to D to E all the way to Z. Mm. Like you understand linearly. That's what we mean by understanding. What they mean is you understand everything around it. 
and that's what they consider that. So it's two very different ways of thinking. And um, so Paul can actually be hitting hard on justice and uh, doesn't feel like it because he feels like he's beating around the bush but not actually hitting the actual nail on the head in one book and then another book be completely coherent in our minds. And that's because of the way he's writing to the different audiences he's writing. So besides Paul, is there any Old Testament evidence towards universalism? Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Yeah, I was to say that's a good one. <laughs> um, you know, from a from a Hebrew perspective, if you're looking at a historical context, like um, Yahweh is very progressive. Um, he is not like all the other gods around him who demand uh, who demand human sacrifice, who are um, are angry and wrathful and vengeful towards humanity. Like, if you look at the historical context and the way the cultures were brought up, everybody believed the gods were pissed off at them. Right? <laughs> right? And they demanded penance. And in some ways, that penance, and sometimes that penance was human sacrifice that was not out of the realm of like normal so you get abraham god says go sacrifice your son after god had already promised him isaac and said out of your lineage i'm going to make an entire nation and the whole world will be blessed because of you um abraham's like okay and i don't know how you're going to do that but okay so it wasn't out of the it it wasn't it wasn't unique to Abraham that God had just told him to um, um, sacrifice his son because it's possible that Abraham, in the context he grew up in, had also seen that happen. There are multiple things that we've, multiple cultures we've seen that have human sacrifice. So he gets up into uh, the mountain with Isaac and uh, ends up getting ready to sacrifice him and Isaac says okay too, which tells me like this is this is kind of a thing you do. Right. Like you or I would not sit there without a fight. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, I'm on the altar. I mean, I, you know, they leave out a lot of details, right? It's just saying yeah, he's yeah. on the altar. But um when I look at the historical context, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that they had already had a context for human sacrifice. So uh, Isaac already knew what was coming in some ways. It was probably a very long, silent trip up that mountain. But then God says, no, I'm not going to require a sacrifice of you. Right. That was monumental. In the scale of human history, there had never been a God that says, no, I won't require this of you. Now, I still require blood which is interesting. We can go on that in some other conversation. But um, this God is very progressive. He, he tells Jonah to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the worst of the worst of the worst types of people when it came to ransacking and imperialism and killing people off and raping and pillaging and they had uh, they had names after them based off the types of torture they would do to their victims, um, and God tells 
Jonah uh, to go over to Nineveh and tell Nineveh if they don't quit and repent of their ways, he's going to destroy their city. Jonah doesn't want to go, not because he's afraid of the Ninevites. He, he hates the Ninevites. He's pissed off with God that he said, oh, go, because he knows that God is merciful and that they would actually repent. I don't know how he knew that, but he didn't want that to be the case. Yeah. And so Jonah's mad at God for giving, giving them the opportunity to, to be saved. Why? Because he's a progressive God. And so if we look at some of these uh, opportunities, another good one is, uh, I think it's Hosea. God tells Hosea to uh, marry a prostitute who he knew was a prostitute, um, and she ends up having an affair multiple times. They have kids. They're definitely not Hosea's. <laughs> and, uh, and he has to raise them as his own. She goes off and leaves him, and then somehow in the middle of, you know, having a, a wild time, ends up in the sex slavery business, and she ends up getting caught as a slave. He goes, even though he's got a legal right to her, goes and buys her back. Um, she's naked in front of the, the slave auction. He takes off his robes, gives them to her. He walks home naked. He paid for her and clothed her. Why? Because God had said, let this be a picture of me with Israel. There is no other God that would say, hey, I'm going to purchase you back even though you're uh, a whore. And I'm going to give you my own clothes. I'm going to get naked for you. I'm going to be in hu uh, humiliation for you even though... There's no other there's no other religion on the planet that says that 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 the god that is supreme over all becomes humble to be humiliated by his own creation. And so when we look at universalism, no it doesn't say that we're all going to heaven, but it doesn't not say that and it gives a lot of options about how god is so scandalously and radically uh, about the salvation of his people. What were you going to say, Derek? Yeah, so I was going to, before you, you drop that bomb, which makes this question a little, I guess, more awkward to ask, but um, <laughs> I was going to say that just because the concept of mercy is so um, just focused on our Heavenly Father. It really, even for like the Romans or, or um, Western philosophy, the, the concept of mercy just really butted out of that. Um, do you think universalism just kind of solely focuses on that and almost takes abuse to the fact that we have a merciful God? No, no, I think it's, I think it's out of a, for universalist theologians, I think there's a real desire to say that God was scandalous in his, uh, in his work of salvation. I don't think and I could be wrong, but I don't think they're trying to say that they, um, I, I don't think they're trying to say that it, he's abounding in mercy as much as they are trying to say that um, he decided he wanted to do this. He wanted to do this. And if God says he's going to do this, 
he's going to do it. Right. <laughs> right. So I think, um, but again, I, after much study on, on this issue, I think that is true, but I think that's not the whole story. Because, I mean, you wouldn't, even even kind of talking through this, you wouldn't consider yourself universalist. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. I, I'm definitely reformed in my theology. Right. Um, I'd like to point out that the uh, historical context, like the prism that we're looking at history, we've gone, you know, several thousand years past the Old Testament <laughs> where you've seen Christianity just absolutely explode yeah. all globally. <laughs> And and we still see people that reject it. Right. So when we see when we talk about universalism, we don't think it's true because we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of the scope of salvation and people still reject it. Whereas in the Old Testament, it is very scandalous to have a God to go out of his way to be merciful and the amount of mercy that he has looks like universalism because yeah. no other deity or false god or other religion at the time was that merciful. Right. And I think if you were living in that time period, you would probably think that this god is very extremely universalist because you you've seen people atone for themselves by killing animals, you've seen people kill other humans to atone for themselves, and then you finally see this god who's like, "Yeah, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it for the world basically." Right. But that's where I get hung up. It's it becomes okay. What what does he mean by the world? Uh, of course, my Calvinistic theology comes into play because I'm a big believer in definite atonement or limited atonement, as other people call it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's no way I could reconcile universalism with definite atonement. It's just not going to happen. They're two diametrically opposed ideologies. And <clears throat> I just the concept of so basically, uh, part of the post-millennial argument against universalism is that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, and throughout time, he's putting multiple enemies, lots of enemies, underneath his feet as a footstool, and the last enemy will be death. And then he's going to deliver his, his kingdom up to the, to the Father, basically like, hey, look what I did. you know. And part of my hang-up is uh, vessels of wrath, enemies of God— People that reject him and hate him. The Bible calls them enemies. Does he destroy them too? Because from what I read, uh, creatures of instinct, blasphemers, born to be caught destruction. (laughs) There's a lot of destroying going on, and I feel like it involves vessels of wrath. And I don't think that just, like I can think about hell, and I have no idea what hell is going to be like. There's no objective answer for it. Yeah. But I can sit here and think, okay, if he sends a human to hell, it doesn't seem like they just serve out their penance. Afterwards, I, I feel like they die. They're just done. Mm. And one of the biggest appeals to me about God is the sense of ultimate justice for people like Mao and Hitler who died as cowards and Stalin who they realized their their entire empires were coming to an end. And so they, I mean, Hitler killed himself. And I look at that and I'm like, you know, there's something where people could point to that and see, hey, there's no God. See, he didn't even get the justice he deserved. But I feel like that is a 
huge explanation for why there is one. Because people will go out of their way to escape judgment here on this earth, but they cannot escape the ultimate justice from God. And we're all going to, the Bible says, he has designated a day for judgment upon everyone who ever lived. And that's going to happen. And I cannot reconcile that idea of ultimate justice, a hell created specifically for the devil and his demons, but also for people who reject God, even though God doesn't will anyone to perish, he does have enemies in human human flesh. And I feel like they will be destroyed. I feel like there's a great, a, an extremely well-thought-out biblical argument for why hell exists and people will go there. And I feel like God being all just and all merciful, uh, I feel like those aren't opposed to each other. I don't feel like they're mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they go hand in hand with how God distributes justice and mercy. And that includes sending people to hell. I just can't reconcile. I can't reconcile anything uh, other than that. Yeah. Well, and this is where it can get really convoluted. So if I can play the devil's advocate for a hey. little bit. Um, <laughs> this is the Lord's house. <laughs> uh, you can meet. Paul um, also writes um, in 1 Corinthians about a situation where they're going to kick a guy out if he doesn't repent for the destruction of his flesh. and um, To save his soul. To save his soul. And so there are vessels of destruction um, and vessels of wrath, but that doesn't mean that the soul's not saved. And so that's an argument that they, they might make in that regard. And so as far as hell is concerned um, with people going there, um, there are also scriptures that say hell was a place designated for Satan and his angels. Right, so that would be uh, in Revelation talking about the lake of fire, which everybody wants to assume is hell. We don't know. Um, I say everybody. A certain tribe of evangelicals want to assume that that is hell. Right. We don't know. Um, so they're 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 not taking scriptures and saying, "Hey, um, we're cherry picking." They're looking at the same scripture you are and going. Well, that uh, doesn't logically follow that that means that they're, uh, they're, they're in torment for all eternity in the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. My only objection to that is with the interpretation of that verse itself because it's that Paul is talking about confronting someone about their sin. They're already in church. It, from my perspective, it seems like those people have believe in Jesus, but they continually sin. And so he tells you, hey, get this person, confront them. That doesn't work, do this to confront them. That doesn't work, do this to confront them. That doesn't work, then you kick them out. And hopefully, so to me, it seems like they're already saved and in their Christian freedom continually choose to do the same sins after being confronted over and over and over again and then is released into the world because God's basically letting them up to their lust. But it seems like their soul were saved before, whereas this case, these people are not saved, and they won't be saved. Um, We don't know that. That, uh, Paul doesn't make that I can't say they won't be saved. But but Paul doesn't make that designation. I know, but it seems weird that you would have... I I don't imagine that there is a non-believer who just continually comes to the church and the church feeling like they need to have church discipline with him, even though they know that he doesn't adhere to any of their tenets. They probably mocks them, but he probably comes because he's still 
curious about God. I just don't see how you could hold him to an objective godly standard for your church unless you knew that he had agreed and believed in them. This is the trap that I think reformed, I think reformed theologians can often move into universalism pretty easily. Why? Because they believe that God is sovereign over all and controls in some way or always the, uh, every decision that man makes. Like, there's no free will. And in many regards, Reformed theologians can get there. And so universalism becomes a very attractive view for those who believe in no free will. Why? Because God made you a vessel of his wrath and has destroyed you, but has saved your soul in the end so that the ends justify the means. I right? can't objectively say that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I'm saying it's attractive. I, it is attractive. <laughs> I'm not denying that. I just can't. I, I it just doesn't think make sense when to we me. look at that, we're actually asking the wrong question because it can't be a duality uh, of issues. If I can look at that verse that Paul's talking about with the vessels, uh, that some are vessels of God's wrath and some are not. Um, I don't necessarily believe that all God's doing is separating both out and going, I choose you, but I don't. Actually, he chooses both of them. I choose you for me, and I choose you to to, to die well, don't or you, be destroyed. Yeah, but don't you think that that often just goes back to the problem of hell? Ultimately? How so? How so? Well, because, I mean, with, even with universalism, I think it's very, it's very easy to start questioning um either God's justice or, or different things when you start looking on the scale of eternity and, and punishment for sin, you know, that, that would add to the flavor of why universalism would taste good. Yeah. Eventually. Right. The weakness, the, the weakness in the argument of universalism is God's justice and holiness. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. The weakness in the reform view is God's love and mercy and grace. In that interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I understand that to a whole, but the way that I work things out is it's no matter what God does, in my opinion, he could do something that I may find morally egregious, but because it's God doing it, it's still somehow merciful and just. And I know that seems like a cop-out answer, but one, I trust that he doesn't do anything morally egregious because right. he's God and he, he is the moral standard. He can't do anything immoral because it's not in his nature and character. He can do things that I might find immoral, but that would be if I was like a non-believer and I had a stony heart and I'm sitting there raising my fist at him. Well, and so that's difficult because we look at it from that angle. John John Piper often goes there, right? And so he's God. He can do whatever the heck he wants to do because he's God. Which I agree. Yes. (laughs) However, when you're on the intellectual outs with that sort of philosophy, that's going to sound really um arrogant to you yeah and, I would and, agree. and the I would difficult agree. part about that is the most people that hold that view of god go yeah so what it's god right that's the whole point however if we need to switch the uh switch what you're saying around so yes whatever god does uh is good because he's god and he gets to decide it However, God's character is good. And so everything he does will always line up with his character. Right. It's not good because 
he's God. It's good because it's good. It's good because he's good. Yeah. <laughs> if right. that makes I, sense. And I can trust that. That's where I it, yes. That's where I base it off of. But I, I universalism to me seems unjust, which is part of the reason why I reject it. Right. And it's a weakness for the universalist right. argument is to say how can God uh be just and still and still allow everyone to get in. Right. Well, and when it comes to the weakness of the Reformed theology, <clears throat> I don't, and this is because I've worked it out myself, I'm sure to a non-believer it would look like my weakness is love and mercy. But the way that I see it and I've worked it out is, well, no matter what action God takes, because of his nature and character, it is going to be good and just because I trust that he's good and just because he says he's good and just all the time and he can't be otherwise. So that's how I reconcile those together. Whereas I'm sure if an atheist or, you know, a Muslim came to me and was talking about this, would see that as a cop-out answer and a weakness in my ideology. That's fine. There are other way more stronger points that we can debate on. But I just like, uh, I mean, even, even Peter talks about it when he's, uh, he's talking about suffering, basically suffering for Christ. Right. But he brings it up, and, and then he quotes Proverbs. He's like, it, it's time for judgment, and it, that judgment begins at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs 11.31. He says, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Now, maybe I'm... I'm totally wrong on how I'm interpreting that, but it seems like he's saying, uh, here's how things are right now. Here's how judgment is right now. And we're believers. What is it going to be like for people who don't believe and are still dead in their sin, basically? And to me, I'm like, well, when you ask that question, I would say much worse. Well, I mean, that was Solomon's conclusion. That's where, I mean, I, I think even, even looking at that, um, for the, the the space of of living and life and all of and everything, we are all equal in one capacity or another. You know, everything there is nothing new. Everything is vanity. Everybody's going to die, one way or another, right? So just going back to Ecclesiastes, but it's the it's the conclusion that he comes back to, which is the justice of God. It's not only that; it is that, but it's not only that because an, another thing is it's. One of the biggest critiques of Calvinists is if everything is predetermined, what's the point of preaching the gospel? Well, then let me flip it on a universalist. If everyone's going to heaven, why do I need to evangelize or proselytize or do anything as far as spreading the gospel to anyone? I, there's, it makes no sense to me. You can, you can have that critique for Calvinism. I think to some degree there are Calvinists who sit on their butt all day because everything's predetermined in their mind, and so they don't, they don't have to do it. Uh, well, the same could be said about universalism. Yeah. If everyone's going to he- uh, heaven, why do we need to preach the gospel? What is the point of Jesus in the first place? Well, yes. Um, His point is he covered the sins of everyone, but my, I, I, don't, I just don't understand. Well, I think so. Okay. Um but I, I think I think that even takes it to another thing to where I would poke holes in both is the ultimate outcome, which is usually where people try to go to either way, but also just honing in on the radical idea of Jesus bringing the kingdom God, kingdom of God here right now in the present happening. We're doing yeah, it. It's here. Yeah. Right. So it, it's just even even if you um, 
even if everything was determined uh, either by some or all, the idea that, you know, Jesus, we're a part of a... Um, of such a greater task of showing that the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. Uh, and another thing I just thought of, it just reoccurred to my mind. Uh, there's a limited delay objection to universalism. If everyone's going to heaven, why is God being patient with and long-suffering with sinners and giving them lots of time to repent? Uh, repent? If they're, why would he do that? If everyone's just going to heaven, he could end it today and be like, you know what? Doesn't matter. Yeah, that's where the post millennialism comes in. Yeah, well, yeah, it's part of <laughs> right? the post millennialism so, argument. But, um, that right. the world is pro- progressing towards the uh, outworking of the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. So, um, universalists and many, and I won't say all because I don't know this to be true. But many of them would adhere to a post-millennialist uh, view of the world where um, we are progressing ever so closer to the, uh, the imminency of uh, the garden city that is found in the end of Revelation. It is our job as uh, ambassadors for Christ in this world, for those of us, that decide that we're going to follow him um, right now, before the resurrection, before heaven, we're going to move and progress this thing forward until the earth is ready. He will come because of the fruition of that. But there's still no incentive, in my opinion, to do anything like that. No, but that answers your question as to why it's taking so long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it does. It does answer my question of why it's taking so long. But the I feel like it falls flat when it like when it comes to uh, instigation and having an incentive to do that. Whereas as a reformed post millennialist partial preterist myself, uh, to me I'm like, well, I know not everyone's saved, and I know that I need to speak into the culture and you know, disciple people and preach the gospel to people that need it because my efforts of doing a small act like that will will eventually help grow everyone globally, culturally, just nationally, closer to, to being like Christ. Whereas if we take in the universalist approach, even if they are post-millennialist universalists, there's still no motivation to move the culture forward because the culture is going not. to be, no, it's going to be saved anyway. That's not true. How is that not true? That, what is saying, the incentive? You're In my, saying that there is, uh, from what I'm hearing, you're saying that there is a uh, a negative reinforcement and incentive that we're that we that motivates us to not be a certain way. I don't think so. From from a universalist perspective. Um, if Jesus has done something that miraculous, wouldn't you want to do something in return? Maybe, but there's still no point. How is there no point? Because it was miraculous. Are, he saved everyone. Yes. He's going to save everyone. Yes. It doesn't matter if we move but closer. But we to still be- get to be a part of that uh, that restoration of creation. Right, but which is why most of them enjoy being uh, environmentalists, and why most evangelical Christians or Protestant Christians are are not so concerned with the environment because they don't uh, 
they don't hold to the cosmic view of uh, what God did to the extent um, that they hold the individual view. Well, I wouldn't say most about the environment. And also, I, it's still, there's still no point because, I mean, you can have the same critique with Calvinists. If everything is predetermined, a lot of Calvinists don't preach the gospel to people. They sit on their butt. Not most of them, but a lot of them, whereas Universalists, that has the same issue. You're not going to progressively move closer to Christ if you know that everyone's going to be saved anyway, in your view, you already closer to Christ because yeah. everyone's it's already saved. I even have scripture to back that up. It says, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads us towards repentance? Yes, but that doesn't answer the soteriological question. Which is? If everyone is saved, there's no point That's in moving. That's a statement, not a so, question. So, okay. All right. I've been waiting to quote this pretty much all week. <laughs> the podcast notwithstanding. Um, I'm going to quote uh, Triple E in this one and see if it doesn't fit. <laughs> uh, because I think his answer as far as uh, doing God's mission would be something akin to, uh, that's why we don't roll with the drama. Don't get drunk. Don't roll mar- marijuana. Not because hell's hot like the coals in a sauna, but we love God and we go where he wanna. There you go. That's a white dude. Yeah. <laughs> Triple I can't, I can't well, rap like him. I'm not cool going to do it. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Triple E. But that's okay. Yeah. That's cool. Are you saying that he's white? I was like, Triple E's black. No, Triple I'm E's saying that yeah. Derek is white. <laughs> I just have to, annunci- I have to enunciate. If I try to rap it, it's not going to sound good. So, yeah, like, yeah, you're, you're yeah. true. tripping him. Yeah, that's fine. I don't know. Tripping him yeah. instead of Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the soteriological question of where is the uh, the motivation, it's still the same motivation that we should have as Jesus followers now. Yeah, I feel like I just answered that. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> God's did. love. We, yeah. do, we do it because he <laughs> wants us to. Because of his, because the love we experience from him, and so we want it's to. Liter- it's the same answer that a Calvinist would have. Yeah. It's uh, the... God compels me. His graciousness, his power, his, um, in Hebrew, kavod, the weightiness, the glory of God that yeah. made this all possible. Why wouldn't that be something that gets you so freaking passionate you want to do something about it? Mm-hmm. Right, but and I still don't see how that would be congruent with believing that everyone's going to be saved regardless of their actions, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they treat God right now. If, if you're a universalist, there is no incentive to do anything. And yet, that is, I won't say no incentive. There's one incentive, that because he's so awesome, You just don't so think loving, it's good enough for so you to want to do something about it. It's not it, about me case. personally. No, if that were the case, I wouldn't be a Calvinist. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, well, uh, yeah, because Calvinism does have the same issue. You're right. Yeah. Um, if you go hardcore Calvinist and everything's predetermined, you have no, you have no say in the matter. So anything that's going to happen is going to happen without you, regardless. But that's not biblical. Well, that's why I don't, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that line of thought. But my answer would be. Even though things are predetermined, which could be the answer of a universalist, and to that I'd have to submit because I would be a hypocrite if I didn't. But because God said to do it, we should do it, whether it's going to be predestined or not. Right, and they would say the same thing, right? That's exactly what I said. Right. 
apart from those, I mean, there's still there's not an incentive. So it's the, the only incentive that we have to do what God wants us to do is the uh, fear of hell. I'm going to default back to Trip Lee because we basically went around the entire thing and quoting the song just answered that. <laughs> yes, but what you're saying is the you're saying they have no incentive, but you're implying by saying they have no incentive is that they're not afraid of hell. Well, this is all based on the, uh, nobody's the premise going. that they're post-millennials. I don't, uh, post-millennialists, which I don't know if they are or not. Even if they're not, they're not going to hell. Right. But it doesn't make sense uh, to be a post-millennialist and be a universalist. I don't see how that makes sense. Well. It makes sense if you're a premillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist or even an amillennialist. I don't see how it makes sense with a post-millennialist eschatological view. That's fine. You don't do a lot of study in the realm of universalism. That's true. I don't. <laughs> So, and I'm sure they have as many weird theological names for their view <laughs> of the end times as you do, <laughs> right? And you would say the that all the weird. other people, <laughs> you would say all the other people um, that have the differing view on eschatology in our own tribe would uh, still be wrong and would show less incentive than the one you ascribe to. So here's what I'll say. Um, Tertullian was a, uh, a theologian and a Jesus follower in uh, the second century. And he said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospels ever crucified between two errors. Those errors are legalism and antinomianism, which for them was their fight with uh, relativism, mm. all grace and no truth, right. whereas legalism is all truth and no grace. But you can't have truth without grace, and you can't have grace without truth. So he was saying there is two ditches on this path. One side is legalism. The other side is basically relativism, universalism, which is... Um, you don't have to do anything. God took care of it all. You don't have to live in a way that is pleasing to the creator. And that's the real issue, right? The real issue, and this is the reason why I can't ascribe fully to the universal approach to salvation, is because, um, yes, the gospel says God did something radical and scandalous and uh, way bigger than we could ever think or imagine when it came to uh, reconciliation right. and when it came to redeeming humanity. And yet, there's the other side that also says that we must believe. Yep. That Jesus died for sins and we aren't supposed to continue to walk in them. That if we walk in the spirit, the lusts and the desires of the flesh are supposed to be put away. And so you have both sides. We are neither a legalist and, uh, and have a religion, nor are we a relativist and have no religion. 
We are a third way when it comes to Jesus. We are a king without a kingdom right now. We are exiles waiting for our king and the and the uh, manifestation of an earthly kingdom. And God is moving history towards that direction. And what he did is way bigger than we could know. Here's the other piece about that. As the church is built now, if you look at what Paul said when he was dealing with the person um, in 1 Corinthians that was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he was saying that, hey, we're going to have to kick them out um, if he doesn't repent. In our churches today, um, if we got to something as bad as that, we would take the same course. Why? Because we care, because it's always about restoration. God always sides with mercy. He is a lawyer when it comes to justice, so he can find the loophole to bring in mercy. That's what God has always done throughout history. And I can, I, I agree with the universalists on that side. God sides with mercy. Um, yet, those that sin, God has covered with grace, but we're not supposed to be legalists about it. And so you got this guy in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, we go, well, we would kick these guys out if they want to continually live in sin and they want to flaunt it. Actually, the reason why they kicked him out wasn't that. It was it was because he was sinning and it was a relational sin that was hurting the family. It wasn't a personal sin. It was a relational sin that was hurting the church family. And so there was no amount of actually working with it in a way that wasn't going to become completely messy. So, like, I'll just give you a clear one. Um, somebody has uh, a porn addiction in our church and keeps dealing with it and dealing with it and dealing with it. Let's say he's flaunting it and he's like, dude, I'm a porn addict. It's so great. I love porn. I love watching it all the time. Okay. Um, we know that God has uh, a standard. And so we want to have a conversation with him for restoration. It would have to be that egregious and that visible for us to actually go there. And this is the difficulty why most of culture has a hard time with universalism or with, uh, with evangelicalism is because we always end up on the side of legalism. We hardly ever <laughs> end up on the side of uh, universalism. We want to sit there and say, well, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong because you need to be perfect, and that's still the wrong way to go. Well, I don't even think it would be the side of, of universalism. I think that would be a, even a step too far, just the side of mercy and grace, just approaching it from that perspective. Yeah, and there's the way to do that is through the way Jesus set up in Scripture, but most of the time that's not the way things are dealt with. And so you have these two ditches that we're, we, we deal with. But both of them are dealt with the fact that we have a holy God that demands perfection, and yet we can never attain. But this ditch says that we, if, we don't, if we don't work hard, we're never going to attain it. But it also has the implication that if we work hard enough, 
we're going to be we're going to attain righteousness. Nope. No, we're not. Never. Jesus did that for us. We don't have to work hard. Jesus did it for us. And then we have the other side that says, hey, Jesus did it for us. You don't have to work, period. <laughs> uh, that's not right either. Right. We work because Jesus did what he did. We want to live a life full of love and mercy and grace and become more holy just like our father is holy because we want to be like our father because our father adopted us and loved us. It's all about grace. God did something miraculous and cosmic, but he also did something deeply individual. And when you get on both sides of the equation, they disregard the other. The legalists disregard the cosmic, uh, the cosmic side of the equation, and the universalists disregard the individual side of the equation. We must receive the gospel, and the gospel's outworking in our lives is righteousness. Yeah. Well, I think we can uh, actually agree on the the basis of amplifying God's merciful quality. Yeah. And uh, that's how he deals with salvation is finding ways to be merciful. And we don't have to go as far as the universalists go, but I do think they're in the right direction as far as mercy. Right. Yeah, I can't... Uh, I'm glad you said that because then it kind of doesn't make this as hokey as so I'm going to say. The song is called Who He Is by Trip Lee, y'all. <laughs> and it plays exactly into what Chelsea just said. And I would recommend everyone go and listen to it. <laughs> and if you want to read a little bit more about um, about relativism versus uh, versus legalism and where we are at as far as Jesus followers, um, this third way, um, a, a book called Gospel Theology by Tim Keller mm. would be a very good book to read. Um yeah, because it's a big deal. Um, we should not negate both sides. Actually, I believe there's. I believe the gospel is multifaceted. It's like a diamond. You can shift it in the light, and you will see a new piece of it every time. Yeah, it's a tension. It's a tension of all those that balancing together. Side note: prayers up to uh, Tim Keller because he's dealing with cancer. So, oh yeah, I think they caught it early enough where he should be okay, but still, yeah, it's a pretty it serious matter. But uh, I think that's uh, where we can end the podcast. Um, thanks for tuning in. And I hope that you enjoyed this discussion. All righty, y'all. Yeah. Thank you, Chesley, for coming in on the podcast. <laughs>